0: The uh, List Trust, whatever, whether people like her or not, was offering a different set of ideas about how the country should be run, and she actually attempted to put them in place. Why was she not able to actually stay in power long enough to even see some of those ideas being implemented?
1: There is a social and economic orthodoxy which exists. If, you, if a government was to dare go against it, you know, they would be closed down pretty quick. But it did feel a bit strange that, you know, we were up against the White House, we were up against the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the Bank of England, the opposition. There was a, a huge uh, opposition to everything that she was doing. You know, when you see this lack of leadership, the lack of spine that we have across all parties, you've got to blame the candidates Department. You know, where are they finding these people? A third of our parliamentarians are unemployable. Uh, you know, <laughs> just, you know, where do we find them? You know, they couldn't run a bath half of them.
2: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our fantastic guest today is a recently retired government advisor,
0: so you can be honest, (laughs) and the author of the Bloom Review... Colin Bloom, welcome to Trigonometry.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I will say that the review you are the author of, you've got here, you worked on it for four years as a review to faith in the UK. Very interesting subject, some uh, difficult and also interesting questions within that. Uh, And of course, you were most recently an advisor to One List Trust. Uh, So we'll talk about all of that. But before we do, tell everybody a little bit more about your background. How are you, where you are? What's been your journey through life?
1: Thank you. Fantastic to be on the show. And um, I've been listening to Trigonometry since, I think, the very, very beginning. Now, Black Curtain Room? Yeah, I remember, I mean, like, I, I remember, I think, probably 50 episodes ago, something like that. I remember when this was built. Um, so, you know, and congratulations on all the amazing progress that you've made in this, uh, uh, with the podcast. So, a bit of background to me, I spent some time in industry, I spent some time working in the not-for-profit sector, but probably the best part of my life, the most productive part of my life um, has been in politics. And I was um, International Secretary for the Conservative Party, Director of the Conservative Party. I ran the Conservative Christian Fellowship for uh, a number of years. Um, Boris appointed me to be the government's faith advisor in 2019, I wrote this report. And then last year I worked for um, uh, Prime Minister Truss uh, for all of uh, seven weeks, and mm-hmm. uh, and then the report came out earlier this year, and then you know I've now taken a step back and will be uh, focusing on other things. And obviously, I mean, look at me—I'm far too young to retire. So yes, mm-hmm. I have retired from government, but not—I've uh, um, not retired um, from life.
0: That's really good to hear. Uh, we'll do things, I suppose, in that order. Uh, we'll come to the report and faith later. I think a really important subject, actually. Um, but before we do, you mentioned the seven weeks of the Liz Truss premiership, uh, and I'll ask you the question that I think everybody wants to know, which is what happened.
1: Well, it was fairly chaotic. Um, I mean, that's yeah. Not, that's <laughs> not a, you know, I won't be I won't be breaking a- any uh, uh, any secrets there. Look, and on a personal level, I like Liz. I've got you know, I'm not going to say a bad word ab- um, ab- ab- about her. I think uh, um, I think she's a you know very decent, very uh, very kind um, person. I would consider her a friend. Um, the time that she had, if you remember it came after the it came at the end of a very grueling two months of campaigning for uh, who was going to get the the leadership of uh, the Conservative Party. That came after all of the chaos of is Boris going to resign? Is he not going to resign, you know, Is he going to stay in office? What's going to happen to the Boris uh, administration? And that came after all of the COVID and the, you know, and we've had... So it wouldn't be fair to say that just those seven weeks were chaos. I mean, I've been around since 2010, working either in CCHQ or in in Number 10 or elsewhere. Uh, It's been chaos pretty much since 2015. I mean, I would say that when... No, twenty sixteen was when Brexit happened, mm. um, and things were fairly well ordered and pretty well run then. After Brexit, when Theresa May came in, and then um, Boris came in, and then COVID, and then Liz, and then Rishi, uh, that was chaos. I mean, it was literally just fighting fires one day to to, to to the next. And I think in the future, when the history books are written, we will look back and just as certainly, I'm a you know I'm a centre right conservative uh, um, free market capitalist, you know, I mean, that's kind of, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that. Um, We will look back and go, we squandered not just a huge majority since 2017 after that election, um, but we squandered the opportunity to govern, I think, really well since 2016.
0: I think. But what happened with with Liz Trust specifically, the reason I ask is, uh, I think on the day that she was elected, uh, Lord Frost was sitting in the chair that you're sitting in. And do you remember that he yes. came in all chipper, he yeah. was excited, and we were excited because, you know, any change is exciting. And also, uh, Liz Trust, whatever, whether people like her or not, was offering a different set of ideas about how the country should be run. And she actually attempted to put them in place. Why was she not able to actually stay in power long enough to even see some of those ideas being implemented?
1: Well, I mean, look, my take on it is that in in August of last year, of uh, 2022, 20, uh, I think it was fairly obvious that she was going to win the leadership election. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, those of us that were working on her campaign could see that, you know, the numbers were, were, were very strong. Um, and as it turns out, you know, she, she won reasonably uh, convincingly. Now that vote was only with the Conservative members, so there was a campaign that you know Rishi's team were going up and down the country, trying to get Conservative um, uh, members uh, to vote for Rishi, and Liz's team were doing the same, um, and the numbers were were pretty healthy for, for, for Liz. So I'm hypo, I'm you know I. Suspect, as I don't know for for sure, but I suspect they knew the gig was up when we did. That was sometime in August, so they went through the motions and and said, okay, you know, yes, they you know they drove to the line and they fought to win. Uh, uh, You know, they thought that they were uh, they had to put in a good showing, but they probably knew it was a death march from the beginning of August. Then September comes, um, the announcement is made, Liz wins. she goes to see the Queen. I think on the was it the fifth or the sixth of September. I think the Queen dies. I think was it the eighth of September. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have ten days of not very much, um, and then chaos, even more chaos than we've ever had uh, before. And I don't necessarily blame Liz for that. That will probably get me into trouble with some of you know my friends who don't agree with me on this. But I think I think that it was inevitable when you've got somebody who is stepping outside of both the economic and social orthodoxy that is, was expected of her. And I and, I'm, and I make this point, you know, if you were to take all of the G7 leaders of, you know, Macron, Trudeau, Biden, um, Schultz, Albanese in Australia, or Jacinda Ardern as it was, uh, in New Zealand, there's not any real difference in either social policy or economic policy between any of them and this and they're all by the way on on the center left so here you've got a center right member of the G7 who's saying no we're going to you know we're going to cut spending we're going to lower taxes we're going to grow the economy we've got to break with the economic orthodoxy and I'm no economist but i mean it sounded good <laughs> you know that actually we here, we can't carry on printing money. We've got to, you know, we've got to do something different because I think as everybody accepts, there is an economic tsunami which is about to hit the West, which we're, you know, which we're not ready for. And so, um, you know, that would have upset some pretty powerful people around the world uh, and, and locally, um, of Ooh, course.
2: One second, Colin. Who are these pretty powerful people? Sorry to interrupt, because there'll be people of a conspiratorial nature who say, well, this is the World Economic Forum. There'll be people, you know, talking about shadowy figures. I mean, who are we actually talking about?
1: Well, look, there are shadowy figures everywhere, even in the comedy circuit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so let's <laughs> Thank not... Thank you for addressing <laughs> that, at me. So, no, But let's not pretend that, you know, that shadowy figures don't exist. Yes. It's this, this not... It's, it's not a conspiratorial thing to say that there are shadowy figures. There are shadowy figures everywhere. Health, education, politics, comedy, wherever. Um, but that's not what you mean.
0: When you talk about comedy, you're not talking about somebody who's puppeteering in the background. You're talking about yeah, someone else.
1: I'm not saying that there is, like... Not, I don't think there's some sort of, you know... Geppetto, who is a—I don't think that, that there is one person who is pulling all the strings, and and I'm certainly no conspiracy theorist, but I'm saying that there is an orthodoxy, and that orthodoxy uh, may be unspoken, it may be uh, unwritten, but it exists, and you have to stick to it because if you step outside of it, you know you 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 feel the you feel the pain of it. So um, and that orthodoxy, I think, you know, is largely economic, but I think it's also, as I said, uh, I think a social orthodoxy in terms of, uh, um, you know, progressive beliefs. And I think that, um, you know, when you have a prime minister that says, no, I'm going to do something slightly different, it upsets the markets, it upsets that orthodoxy, it upsets individuals. um, And you can see why, and it becomes a bit of a feeding frenzy. I mean, the last days of trust was... um, when she was Prime Minister, um, was, you know, I mean, it was, everybody was against her. I mean, and and, and maybe, because as I said, I'm, I'm not an economist, maybe they're right. Honestly, you know, Francis Constantine, maybe they're right, maybe I'm wrong. But it did feel a bit strange that, you know, we were up against the White House, we were up against the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the Bank of England, the opposition, you know, other people within the Conservative Party, you know, there was a there was a huge uh, opposition to everything that she was doing, which seemed to me um, out of kilter with uh, what would be normal. I mean, it was just such a, such a robust um, response uh, to the point that, you know, I think on the Friday, uh, uh, the chancellor, Kwasi Kwarting, had to fly back from Washington. Uh, and he was fired. I think on the plane on the way over, Jeremy Hunt was brought in. It was too late by then. You know, the game, the gig was up. Um, but so I'm. I'm not suggesting any cons- conspiracy. What I'm saying is that there is a social and economic orthodoxy which exists. If you, if a government was to dare go against it, you know they would be closed down pretty quick. And honestly, tell me where is the social and economic difference between this government? and that of Biden or Trudeau or Macron, or Keir Starmer for that matter.
2: I suppose the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is Maloney in Italy. In Italy,
1: yeah. yeah. Right.
2: But that's pretty much the only one, but the point is- Well, well you've
1: got Hungary as well. Yeah. Uh, so Viktor Orban in, in, in Hungary, he's definitely stepping outside of that orthodoxy, but it's a country with 10 million people. I love Hungary, I love Hungarians. It's not going to rock the planet if they step outside of the orthodoxy, when the United Kingdom still the fifth biggest economy in the world, still the sixth largest manufacturer in the world, London, the you know probably the greatest capital city, the greatest city on the planet, when that steps outside that economic orthodoxy, you know it 's going to make waves, and as much as I love Rome and as much as I love Italy and as much as I love Hungary, um, you know we 're not talking in the same league
2: no good point taken when did you know that things are not going well was there a particular moment where you thought to yourself hang on
1: yeah um mid august i think <laughs> yeah, uh, no i would say sometime yeah, it was it was it was very shortly afterwards um and uh you know and i and i thought that you know we were just fighting fires all the time and party conference came around um early october uh, 2022 um, and by then it was very clear that, you know, we were constantly just putting out fires and no matter what the party chairman did, what the chief whip did, what the, uh, you know, what the prime minister's chief of staff was doing, what the other cabinet ministers were doing, it was all, you know, it was all just getting a bit too much.
2: And what were these fires in particular, Colin?
1: Well, you, you know, so we had, let's say, personnel issues with some members of parliament. Mm-hmm. Um uh some of them were legacy problems that had come over from uh from from Boris's time as as, as, as Prime Minister. Um but you know, just getting the support across the backbenches was 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 pretty difficult. So you're fighting your own party at this point? Yeah, I don't think that's I don't and I don't think that's necessarily controversial. I think mm-hmm. the the party was fighting itself pretty much during COVID as well. And I Brexit, think. yeah. Yeah, uh, well, and, and certainly Brexit. I mean, the party's position on Brexit was neutral, though the Prime Minister Cameron obviously was, uh, you know, he was in favour of staying. And I often think about, you know, David was a, was a great Prime Minister and I really, really like and admire him. Um, you know, I, I wish he had stayed out of that argument. I wish he had said you know what, I'm not going to campaign for one thing or the other. I've got to be the prime minister. The rest of you go and campaign and fight for your lives, fight for what you believe. Um, and then when the votes come in, I'll implement what, what, you know, what you had. But by by this time, he'd already done, I think, two, um, uh, you know, we'd, we'd had two big, uh, um, you know, national uh, elections. Uh, we had the the first past the post one. And then we had the, uh, um, what was the, what was the other, the Scottish, the Scottish referendum. Um, We hadn't had referendums for as long as anyone could remember. And then suddenly three come along at once and David supported, um, you know, uh, remaining and it cost him his premiership. And I think actually, you know, he, he was a very, very good prime minister. He was, he-
0: Why do you say that? Because I don't think that's how people will remember him. And I, I don't really know what I think about it. Why do you say he was a good... Because I'll be honest, if you strike me as a guy who's worked in the Conservative Party for a long time. You're very nice. You're nice about other people. Are you just saying that because you're being nice? Or, or was he actually a good prime minister? And if so, what was it that made him a good prime minister?
1: So, look, he's, he's, his personal values were, were fantastic. I mean, there was no scandal around David Cameron whilst he was in office. Then there's been one little thing subsequently with Greensill. But when he was in office, you know, n- no hint of any scandal around him at all. He's a good family man, he was a decent man. Um, he was very clear about what he wanted to do, what he wanted to achieve. I thought the coalition, and again this will get me in trouble with some of my some of my friends, um, but I actually thought the coalition did a pretty good job. I quite, you know, I quite like Nick Clegg as deputy prime minister and Danny Alexander, those were like glory times. That was a, you know, there we had a, what felt like a center-right political coalition that was doing things. But when then Brexit came along, and of course we've not had stable government since. So when I said Cameron was a good prime minister, you know, he did have an air of stability about him. You know, there there wasn't the rocking of the boat, there wasn't the major scandals, scandals, there wasn't the issues that we, you know, that we had. If you remember, he had a you know, pretty good foreign secretary in William Hague to begin with. Uh, and then he won a first time in, I don't know how many years, probably 25 or 30 years, he actually won a majority for the Conservative Party. We didn't win a majority in 2010. That's why we had the coalition. Um, and the then party chairman, Lord Feldman, fantastic, fantastic man, great boss. Um, and, you know, we're bringing about the kind of reforms that a grown up political party needed. Um, And then of course it all just sort of changes overnight and Theresa May comes in in 2016. and, um, And then, you know, there were a lot of people who were very, very against her and against what she stood for. She didn't help herself. And then we had this ridiculous election in 2017. I mean, just ridiculous. We should never have done it.
2: Colin, do you think part of the problem was, I look at that cons- the Conservative Party, the majority that you want in the 2019 general election is huge, particularly from the red wall, and we've covered that in, on the show ad nauseam. But the problem is is that when you then have a Prime Minister like Liz Truss saying things like, we need to shrink the government, we need to, we need to lower taxes, we need to cut public sector, etc., etc., that is a message that by and large ain't going to fly in the red wall, which means that you are therefore putting these MP seats in jeopardy. Therefore, if they act in their own best interests, they're not going to want to go for it.
1: So I disagree, I disagree with you, Francis. I, I think the red wall, um, if you said to them, do we want to have more efficient government? Do we want to cut waste? Do you want to have more, more money of your own in your own pocket? Do we want to cut taxes? The red wall, if you want to put it like that, uh, those northern cons- sort of labour seats that became conservative—that's their language. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we won such a massive majority in twenty uh, uh, in twenty nineteen because we had the three Bs. Uh, sorry, the three Cs, not the three, <laughs> the three Cs. Right? We had uh, no. I was right the first time. The the, the we had uh, uh, BBC. I oh, don't know three Bs, three Cs. It was BBC. We had Boris enormous charisma. I mean, you know, so much charisma. He shifted the dial on every campaign he's ever been in. And he's, he's, you know, he's a the most once-in-a-generation charismatic, charismatic uh, uh, politician. Love him or hate him, he's going to move the dial. Um, we also had Brexit. At that time, Brexit was not done. A lot of people were very frustrated. And we had Corbyn, you know. <laughs> so we had the BBC. We had Boris, we had Brexit, and we had Corbyn. That, that led to that huge majority that Boris won in, uh, in, in 2019. I think if we were to have the election with that, if Corbyn wasn't the leader of the opposition, the majority wouldn't have been as big. If Brexit had been sorted, the majority wouldn't have been as big. And if Boris wasn't Boris and didn't have that magnetic charisma that, you know, that made him so famous, then the majority wouldn't have been that big. There may not have even been a majority at all, You know, for all I know. But those were the three ingredients that meant that we had this weird landslide that, that happened. Um, and those issues of more efficient government, smaller government, lower taxes, going for growth, building jobs—those are exactly the sort of things that um, uh, people in those northern seats want. They're not the kind. Are they? Of-
0: sorry, sorry to interrupt, Colin. I mean Matt, Matt Goodwin, who's a regular on the show, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, his argument is that the Liz trusts economic position, uh, which, by the way, I really am I'm, I'm a fan of. I, I do think we need to shrink the size of the state, etc. Represents sort of about 7% of the British public. Uh, most people want, you know, high taxes because they want high spending. Are you sure that that's really what people in the Red Wall want?
1: Well, it dep- I mean, if you say, do you want your uh, resources to be wasted in the way that they have been wasted on... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you're leading the but, witness but, but a little bit. I, maybe,
1: but but you know, you've got to you've got to think we are we are printing more money than we can. Um, we can God knows. I more. agree
0: with you. We I'm are, just saying. Does are, the red wall agree
1: with you? We are borrowing more money, but I think these are these are mostly pretty down to earth, s- common sense people. You know, like Jeff Norcott. You know, what do most people think? I think most people think this. You know, <laughs> most people think you shouldn't. Live beyond your means. You shouldn't have a government that's bigger than what you can af- afford. But we have been, literally, ha- you know, high on printing money and borrowing money that we don't have. And who are we saddling? We're saddling your children. And we're saddling my children, and, and our grandchildren, with with you know un, uh, you know, just unpayable debts. And we have to get to grips with this. So Liz was right. We have to have smaller government. You know we have to have a low tax economy. How many politicians have you heard? How many people have you had sitting in this chair saying, we wish the British economy was like, you know, or London was like Singapore on Thames? Do you know how you get Singapore on Thames? Is that you have a much more mature approach to immigration. You have smaller government. You probably pay your politicians a bit more. You root out corruption. You deal with law and order in a much more stringent way. You deal with uh, uh, asylum in a probably a, a different way than what we're, we're currently doing. So they they say the sound bites. This is what we want, but they're not prepared to then do what's necessary to achieve it. And what will be necessary to achieve it, you know, will be having a smaller government, with a much more you know much more focused government, um, taxing less, putting corporation tax up, is a crazy thing to do. You want to drive businesses out, you know. I, I I just don't understand where is the conservative in taxing businesses more than they've ever been taxed before. We should be competing in a global stage by having, no, come to the UK. You know, if you're a billionaire somewhere in the world, you've probably got a flat here in London or Mm -hmm. you've got a house in London, right? Um, We get precisely zero of of, of their income tax. Well, why would you pay 50% or 45%? You know, better to have 5% of everything than 40% of nothing. I mean, any idiot knows this. But we we make life very very difficult for ourselves if we um, if we don't use the assets that we have like London you know like um, uh, you know the stability that we are famous for uh, in a in a successful way and I think that you know we are we we are in danger if we don't make some big changes pretty quickly then I think we're in danger of. Um, you know, creating irreversible problems for ourselves if we haven't done so already.
2: So you're saying all of these things, which I agree with from an economic point of view, why aren't we doing it then?
1: Well, you see, that's the, that's the $24 million question, right? The, it's, it's hard, it requires political leadership. And I, I say this in my report, there are certain things that, you know, we need to tackle as a nation that is gonna require political leadership. It's gonna require courage, bravery from our politicians more than just fine words they are going to have to see something through to the end the problem is is that at the slightest pressure most of them cave in you know you saw this recently with the ministry of justice and i can't remember what exactly the issue was it might come to me where it was obvious that they were going to have to you know change change tack it was it was a uh, uh, I remember, it was the guy who had been convicted and sent to prison on, 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 um, and and he, he was innocent. And he had to repay the the money that he got compensation and then they char- tried to charge him for bed and board for the 20 odd years he was in prison, right? And, and you know, the newspapers sort of said, this is outrageous. And the Ministry of Justice put out a, a statement which said, um, we have no plans to change this. And I, I was listening to this on the radio, and I and I turned to my wife and I said, "Of course they're going to change this. I mean, this is like this is ridiculous. This is typical of what I'm talking about." And sure enough, within a week, the justice minister had announced, "Yes, we're going we're going to change it." So what are they, they? They they lose on all counts because they look idiotic to begin with for not saying, not reading the political runes and saying. Yes, of course we're going to have to change this. This is a you know it's offensive that you would charge this guy this, um, and of course we need to look at it. But but then they'd already put the the press release out to say that they weren't going to look at it, and then of course then they have to U-turn. There's nothing more obnoxious to an MP that has to, you know, grab hold of the handbrake and do a 180 degree U-turn in the middle of the skid pan, which is exactly what they did. So they just look stupid, and and this is. Um, it's going to require bravery for them to say, "This is what we're going to do, and we're going to stick to it." Um, and we don't see much bravery, I'm afraid, in in public life. We don't see it from either polit- either of the two main political parties, or uh, or, or any of them. And um, you know, I remember I'm old enough to remember my political hero was Ronald Reagan, right? And um, if you ever come to my house, you'll see that we have our downstairs toilet is <laughs> uh, is. It's got all of the Reagan memorabilia in there. He used to sit in front of a TV screen and talk to the nation. And he was known as like the great communicator, you know, the Gipper. And and he would say, this is why we're going to be cutting taxes because, you know, we're cutting taxes because, in fact, we will raise more money. And he would talk about things like the Laffer curve and or when the when the shuttle exploded and he went straight onto the TV and he spoke to a nation that was in shock about us not hiding our you know, our mistakes, but we do things in, you know, making a clear contrast between Western American values and the values of the of the, of the Soviet Union. And, you know, he had great political bravery, you know, he's a great communicator. And we don't have anyone like that,
0: you know. But here you come to the question that I always ask in this situation, which is, well, I mean, the obvious counter to what you're saying is just from a devil's advocate perspective is, Let's uh, trust show bravery, and look how that ended, number one. But there's a broader thing going on that I really wanted to ask you about, which is I am very concerned about what you're talking about. Uh, not only the lack of leadership, uh, but also particularly on the economic issue, we are not willing to be honest with ourselves, and all we're doing is pushing the problem down the line onto people who are not yet born. That is irresponsible. But the question I want to ask you is in a world in which anytime a prime minister says, I intend to cut spending, I intend to lower taxes, what the media do is they come out and say, well, when you do this, you will kill people. You are killing people. You are a murderer, right? George Osborne, I was on TV the other day arguing with some woman who called George Osborne a murderer, right? And I asked her when he was convicted. She didn't have an answer. But my, my point <laughs> is we live in a world in which i don't really know how a politician is ever going to cut spending again because if you if you make that decision you will be saddled with those images that people will be given in their heads by the media
1: yeah yeah it's a tough job right and it shouldn't be for everybody and you know we have this phrase amongst some friends of mine and i ibtcd you know i blame the candidates department um, you know, when you see this lack of leadership, the lack of spine that we have across all parties, you've got to blame the candidates' department. You know, where are they finding these people? You know, I would say, I'm being very generous now, a third of our parliamentarians are unemployable. Uh, you know, <laughs> just like, you know, where do we find them? You know, these people we, run, we are trusting to vote on our behalf to run things. You know, they couldn't run a bath half of them. So, you know... We've got to be much clearer eyed, much more focused about what candidates we're choosing, you know, Um, and then when they're in government, they need to know that their political leaders, those people who are currently either shadow ministers or ministers or secretaries of state or shadow secretaries of state, have got the spine and have got their back, you know, to see something through. And they need to explain to the public why they're doing it. The public aren't stupid. You know, they're not stupid. If you explain to them... This is why we have to do it and stick to their lines. I'm sure that, you know, you, you won't win over some, of course you're not, you know, but you're never gonna win over everybody, but you just need to be able to say, this is why we're doing it. And you know what, it might be unpopular, but you do all that at the beginning of a parliament. You don't, you know, you might not wanna do that at the very end of a parliament, but you need to make these big, difficult, tough decisions and take people with you. I think the public is sick of being taken for fools. And, you know, having wishy washy here today, gone tomorrow politicians that, um, you know, have no spines, I think they're looking for political leaders. There's a guy, um, there's a Conservative um, Member of Parliament, um, Northern fella, he was Labour, he was a coal miner. Lee Anderson? Lee Anderson. He's phenomenally popular, you know. Well, where did he suddenly spring from? What a guy, you know? Common sense says it as he sees it, takes on that Burke with the uh, megaphone outside parliament every time he sees him. You know, now we need more people with that kind of backbone. I'm not saying, I don't know him and I don't know his politics. I'm sure he's a fantastic fellow. Um, But we need more people with that kind of conviction who are going to stick to their guns and not get pushed around by the latest, you know, fancy Dan, you know, opinion polls that might come to the left or to the right.
0: Well, I hope that that happens. Uh, let's move on to something slightly less controversial, mm-hmm. which is, of course, religion. <laughs> uh, uh, you are the author of the Bloom Review, which is uh, a review into faith in this country and, and a lot of the issues that, uh, that surround that. Before we get into your findings and some of your conclusions... What is faith and how is it different from belief? Uh, What is faith and what is the purpose of faith in society? uh,
1: That is a great question. So I've done quite a few interviews about this report already. No one's ever asked me that. The, The definition between faith, belief and religion, I think is misunderstood. And so in my report, I make a very clear recommendation that government, for the purposes of um for the purposes of, of, of government, there should be some working definitions of what is religion, what is faith, and what is belief. Um, in simple terms, we've all got beliefs. You don't have to have a faith to have a belief, but you do need to have a belief to have a faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and religion is... You don't necessarily have to have a faith to have a religion. Or a belief. <laughs> or, or a, <laughs> yeah. Um, we have sort of institutionalised religious organisations in the UK um, and around the world. And then you've got people... So there's a lot more people who are very spiritual. So they would say, I, don't, I, I have a faith, but I don't have a religion. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would say that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, A lot of people believe in God. I mean, still, the vast majority of people still believe in God. What's like,
0: the percentage in this country?
1: I, I think it's in the 80s. In the 80s, interesting. Well, um, um, who say that they believe in God. But it might not be the God of you know, Islam or the god of, 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 of Judaism or the god of Christianity or, or Hinduism or Sikhism. Uh, but it, it might just be something, they believe in something. But they certainly have a belief in something more than they can see, more than they can touch, something supernatural. It may be well-founded, it may be not, you know, it's not for me to say. But Is that faith? Um, that would be a, that would be a faith. That yeah. would be faith. That, that would okay. be a faith. It would also be a belief, because I say you have to yeah. have a belief to have a faith. Mm. You don't have to have uh, a faith to have a belief. So the Humanists, and and by the way, Andrew Copson, if you ever if you ever want a good guest for your show, get Andrew Copson from the Humanists. This is, I like him. You know, we get on well. He he was very helpful when I was looking at these definitions. I don't think he necessarily wanted to be as helpful as he as he was, but he was very helpful because you know he did help me understand that. You know, you you can have profoundly um, worldview beliefs that that are not rooted in anything supernatural. They're not rooted in anything that requires faith. Um, uh, you know, people joke that you know humanism is, um, you know, it's the it's the religion for people that have no faith. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of um, because they they do have their they have an orthodoxy in, it in that sense. Um, but yes, still, the majority of people in the UK have a faith. It, it, it's for the first time, according to the 2021 census, it's less than 50% now are Christian, 7%, nearly 8%, I think, are, are British Muslims. And then you've got you know Hindus and Sikhs and Jews and, um, and, and Buddhists and others that sort of make up that difference. But from memory, I think it's in the sort of 70s, Uh, of people who say that they have a faith. Um, And you know, that's very interesting. So when you've got that many people who say faith is important to them, their faith shapes who they are and what they do and why they do what they do. um, And yet government is so illiterate when it comes to understanding, well, what is it that makes these people tick? Mm -hmm. You know, even the basics of what's the difference between a Hindu and a Sikh? If, 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 If a government official if a civil servant, somebody who's responsible for enacting a writing policy and then administering it, doesn't know the difference between a Hindu and a Sikh, then there's something wrong. And what I found was that faith literacy in government, in the police, in the National Health Service, in prison service, in education, was woefully inadequate. You know, and when faith is more important to, there are more people with faith than any other protected characteristic. So you've got more people who have a faith in the UK than are pregnant, than are um, male or female, or um, LGBTQI, or um, disabled, or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember what all the protected characteristics are, but, but, you know, more people have a faith than any of them. And yet, faith is the Cinderella protected characteristic when it comes to these things. And so my, my argument from the very beginning, and, you know, Boris asked me to do this, Because I think he understood from his time as mayor that, and London is, by the way, has more people of faith than the rest of the country as a percentage. It's just much more diverse. That I think he kind of had that instinct. Now, Boris is many things. A lot of people will criticise him, you know, from here to eternity. Um, But he does have an intellectual curiosity and he does have an instinct, which very few other politicians will have. And he, I think, had this sort of instinct. Well, look, there is something that, There's a disconnect, both as my time as mayor and now as, you know, as foreign secretary and now as prime minister, that people, faith is important to some people and yet we don't understand, you know, we don't understand it as either government or as uh, in public life. So my report is um, 65,000 words long, you know, it's it's a big report, 22 recommendations. We did a call for evidence. We had 21,000 responses to it. You know, there's a lot of work that went into it. An excellent team supporting me from you know, academics as well as um, some civil servants. And um, we produced these recommendations, which hopefully, if either this government or the next, whatever that might look like, you know, will adopt. And I think it will go some way to improve the relationship between government and and faith, um, people of faith and places of worship. I mean, just take, for example, places of worship. We have um, tens of thousands of them and nearly all places of worship in the UK are schools of virtue. You know, whatever your faith, if you go to a place of worship, you will come out of it a better version of yourself, we hope, right? they, they contribute to the public good, whether it's in the mosque or the synagogue or the church or the temple or the Gurdwara, they contribute to the public good enormously. And yet it kind of runs parallel to everything. government's oblivious to it. Think of all the youth clubs and the food banks and the self-help groups and the, and the you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and the Cocaine Anonymous and all these other groups that are run um, out of places of worship. They do phenomenal work. And, uh, and I'm very excited by the work that they're doing. You know, I want to champion them Uh, um, but, you know, government are oblivious to it for the most part. And it seems to be an afterthought whenever they just think, oh gosh, you know, we need to, we saw that in COVID, this afterthought, you know, COVID suddenly happens. We need to close down places of worship. Well, we had no way of communicating with, you know, well, who are the, how do we get hold of all the imams and the rabbis and the, um, and, and the bishops and the, and, and the temple elders. How do we get hold of them? Well, you know, it was a, um, it was an it was an interesting time because you just saw immediately at a time of crisis, we needed these people. We needed the places of worship to act as vaccine centres and to do all these other things that they were uh, that they were doing. But there was no communication. There was no relationship.
2: Colin, uh, a lot of people have come on this show and they've been speaking about the decline of Christianity and the fact that it's having on our society. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Is is Christianity declining? And if so, how quickly?
1: Well, it is and it isn't, right? So um, within the different denominations within the Christian church, you know, you'll have, I mean, I always think of it a bit like a candle, you know, when you get to the very top of the candle, very high church, and then you've got kind of different denominations down the bottom. Um, Evangelical church is growing, the evangelical churches is growing, particularly um, the Evangelical Church of England churches. The um, uh, the Pentecostal churches are growing. The the you know so some of the more recent immigrant communities that have brought their particular um, uh, flavour of, of, of Christian expression, they are you know they're big. The Catholic Church is doing pretty well. I mean, largely um, I think driven by one. Some people in the Church of England feeling that they are, Church of England no longer speaks for them on mm-hmm. you know, certain issues of, of what they see as morality, and also because we had lots of Eastern Europeans um, come to the UK and they they, they started going to um, Catholic churches. But it's a mixed bag. So overall, we have a um, you know we have a, a a state religion if you like in that uh, we have the uh, the Church of England. Um. And, and yes, it would be fair to say that fewer and fewer people are probably, um, identifying or definitely fewer and fewer people are identifying as being Church of England. Um, however, within that, if you were to have a look at it from a, from a segmented point of view, the different, um, communities that within that, some are growing like crazy. So if you go to, um, St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. Just take London. We've got St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. We've got Holy Trinity Brompton packed, absolutely heaving. And they've got lots of satellite churches around London. Both of them are doing you know, incredible work and their churches are full. And yet, you, know, you can go to some little parish churches not far from here. You might only get a dozen people in there. So it's a really mixed picture. Um, but what we are seeing is a lot of Particularly Gen Zs and Millennials are saying, "Well, I might not want to be religious, but I do want to have a faith." And so they are finding a home in some um, nonconformist or evangelical churches, um, um, where where it is you know perhaps more welcoming. It's certainly very different to a you know a priest and you know um, the liturgy that might go on. Um, I mean, some uh, some churches are like. Mini rock concerts. I mean, there would be, you know, the production values. And I, I love your set, but I mean, they would make your set look po- positively. Well chill- all right, mate, <laughs> <laughs> chill out. Against <laughs> you know, slack- like not fair yeah. mate. And, and and so when you're when you're, you know, when you look at it in the round, I think in the round, you would say I would say, and I say so in my report that actually faith is in pretty good health, but it's just not what it used to be, you know, and, it, and it's certainly not what. Um, I think some, some people in the media would want it to be. You know, there is a, let's talk the church down, let's talk faith down, you know, it's dying out. There is a sort of a, um, you know, an orthodoxy of, uh, of you know, um, uh, secularism.
0: Do you think that's this- because the elite classes are populated disproportionately by people who are of that secular world view?
1: Well, that's an intre- That's an interesting point. Many, many civil servants that I spoke to, and if if you take our civil servants and, our, and the BBC, if you just take those two, people who work at the BBC and civil servants, they pretty much come from the same stock. You know, mm-hmm. red-, red brick universities from the home counties. You know, but many of them have a faith, and this is the this is the infuriating thing. Many of these people would have a faith, but it would be very private. They would go to their church on Sunday, or they would go to their Um, synagogue or they'd go to their mosque and they wouldn't bring it to work with them, but they would bring other aspects of their life, you know, wanting to be very modern and they would bring their whole self to work, whatever that might be. But faith does seem to sort of, there was a, there's a sort of a feeling where you've got to privatize it. Um, And that may or may not be the right thing, but I mean, I'm not convinced that um, um, that these people necessarily are devout secularists um, but they certainly, many of them, go along with a secular worldview, probably just to keep the peace. No one wants to get fired, right, for stepping outside of. Goes back to what I said earlier. You don't want to step outside the orthodoxy of the, 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 the what you're in. But you know, faith is, as I say in the report, and I think I've demonstrated both, you know, empirically uh, and uh, evidentially that you know, faith is actually in pretty good health.
2: Hey guys. Trigonometry needs your help. We took a big risk creating the show. And for us to keep doing the incredible work that you all love, we need your support. That's
0: the only way we're going to stay independent and create content that you won't be able to find anywhere else. There is no other podcast where you'll hear interviews with Nigel Farage one week, and the next week you've got Aaron Bastani, the founder of left-wing show Navara Media, on the same
2: platform. You know the mainstream media aren't honest you know they've been caught lying again and again. You know they can't be trusted. The only way to change that is to make a stand and support independent content creators, like Trigonometry, to produce better and more honest content.
0: We have big plans and we'll shortly be announcing exciting new shows and more terrific interviews with huge guests. That
2: isn't going to happen without your help. When you support us, you also get incredible extra content, such as extended interviews with none of those irritating adverts and they'll be released 24 hours early just for you. We'll have exclusive bonus interviews that only you get to hear. Click the link on the podcast description or find the link on your podcast listening app to
0: join us. Support us and help change the way we have conversations and make the world saner. So what were some of the key recommendations in terms of things that we need to change? in well, relation to
1: faith? One of, I mean, look, one of the key things, I mean, I've said this in other interviews, but if there was only one, there are 22 recommendations, if there was only one recommendation that this government should introduce and do it quickly, and that is to tackle forced and coercive marriage. So we have thousands and thousands of typically uh, women, but not, not exclusively, um, British women, who are forced or coerced into marrying someone against their will. And it's like, it's just as, um, it's like in the too difficult box. We can't deal with it, you know, it's it's just too hard. If we accept that it goes on, that somebody is forced to marry someone that they don't love, whom they may have never met before, then we accept that they're gonna be raped, sexually assaulted, and all other kinds of travesties will happen to them. Um, and that should not happen in this country. Every prime minister, as far back as I could find, said something really positive. We must tackle the scourge of forced marriage, you know, and we will do something, no, nothing's happened. Nothing? You know, n- hardly anything. The dial hasn't moved at all. The unit sits between the Home Office and the Foreign Office and anyone that works in government knows as soon as you've got a department that has two bosses, it has no boss. Mm. Civil servants work to a minister right? And a minister works to a secretary of state. And if the secretary of state says, this is a priority, then it happens. If they're suddenly working to two ministers or two secretaries of state, it becomes somebody else's problem and they don't tackle it. And I make a very, very clear recommendation in the report that government have to get to grips with this. It happens um, in all communities. There's not, I mean, you know, there will be, I think, some Lazy people that will say, "Oh, it's all in one community." It's not. It happens in lots of communities. Um, and
0: can you flesh that out, Colin? Because I think you say it'll be lazy people, but I, I think people who are not that well educated about faith would likely jump to assumptions. So there
1: would, the, there's an assumption that it would always be in the, within the British Muslim community, and it does happen within the British Muslim community. It also happens in the Gypsy Roma community, uh, the, the traveller community. It happens uh, in the Jewish community, particularly with the ultra orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jewish community; um, it's, it's particularly prevalent in the um, in the in the Haredi community there, um, and there are some very small and the numbers are tiny, but in some very small Christian groups it will happen in, and then in other communities where you've got the traditions of arranged marriages. Now, there's a distinction between what is an arranged marriage and what is a forced or coercive marriage, but I, I personally passionately believe. That if there is any coercion at all, it's a coercive marriage. So if a, a dad or a mum says, "I really would like you to marry this person," you know, for whatever reason, and the daughter or the son says, "No, no, no I, I like, you know, I like so and so," I know, no, but this would be really good for you. That is a coercion that is happening. Yeah. We've also got child marriage that is happening, particularly within the Gypsy Roma Traveller community.
2: And how old are these children? Well, some of them are
1: like 13 13 years old. And it's happening here in this country. And and government know it's happening, but it's kind of like, it's just too difficult to deal with.
0: And why is it too difficult to deal with? What's difficult about it? Well,
1: because you are opening yourself up to um, customs and practices which are both, um, some will argue are religious, therefore you're not arguing with humans, you're arguing with the almighty in whatever shape he comes. Um, and they are practices that, in some cases, will go back hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And you know, there will be some groups that say we've been around a lot longer than this government. You know, governments come and go, but our faith, our way of life, stays the same. Um, and the impact that it has on women is absolutely obscene. And and you know, I I I am um, some of the evidence that we found and some of the testimony that we received was absolutely heartbreaking. From British women who have been forced and trapped in marriages, um, you know, raped, abused, and no one could do anything. Seemingly, no one could do anything, um, even within their local communities. And in some cases, their own mothers um, empowering it, almost you know, becoming enablers of this crime because it happened to them. Now, I mean, it's it's adjacent to the issue of FGM, female genital mutilation. I don't cover that in my report because it's not really a religious thing. It's more of a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's horrendous that it happens. And there are laws against it, but it still happens. And what's even, you know, makes it more incomprehensible to me is that there are some mothers that are enabling it because it happened to them and it happened to their sisters. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to, you know, and we have to tackle these thorny subjects. And that requires bravery. You know, it requires our politicians to be brave and courageous. They just need to find a spine.
2: Look, I think everybody here is in agreement with you. The thing is with, with this particular issue of coerced marriage is that if the, I, I imagine it's normally women, if these women report it to the police, they put their lives in danger. And not only that, they're going to be essentially excommunicated from their community, aren't they?
1: Yeah. And that sense of shunning and excommunication is a very powerful weapon mm. to keep people trapped within coercive, um, you know, faith-based harm or religious harm, harmful environments. Um, and, it, and, you know, that's, there's a whole chapter on, um, on, on, on harm that is done within faith communities. Look, the vast majority of places of worship are amazing. The vast majority of people of faith are amazing. Um, they do tremendous work. There are some very, very small minorities. I say there are three types of believers. I say this in the report. There are three types of believers. There are are true believers. We love true believers. We can work with true believers of all faiths, right? Good, decent, generous, kind, peaceful people. And you've got non-believers. And most non-believers are fine, decent, kind, generous people. We can work with them. The third group are the make-believers and they're the ones that cause us all the problems. It's the make believers who use their faith as a vehicle to promote themselves or their agenda. You know, they do it for pride or for, you know, for money, ego or status or whatever it might be. And they use faith as a vehicle for these things. And government need to be really discerning, not cynical, but they need to be really discerning about who they engage with, who they talk to within the faith space. Not just going for the First person that puts their hand up and says, Hi, I'm the local community leader, talk to me. You know, they need to say, um, No, we're going to be much more discerning about who we're talking to and what we're dealing with. Um, Because there are so many make believers out there. And again, without, you know, turning the tables on you guys, there are make believers in the comedy industry. How many people use their comedic skills for, you know, for non comedy reasons?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, quite a lot of them, unfortunately. The thing that I found really interesting about your report is you were saying that there are certain uh, topics or aspects of religion that we don't talk about, we don't focus on. One of them is Sikh extremism. There was black nationalism mm, mm. in there. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I don't think, I mean, that to me was a, it was completely surprising.
1: So, um, look, number one, when it comes to faith-based extremism... Um, by far and away, both in, in, in destruction, quantity, impact, um, Islamist extremism is is still the biggest. And, um, and I make the point in my report that we have to acknowledge that by far and away, the biggest victims of Islamist extremism are Muslims. And I don't think we're quick enough to say, look, yes, it affects us. You know, if there's a tragedy, if there's a um, you know, if there is a terrorist attack, you know, in one of our cities or something, of course, that all affects us. But the day-to-day grind of ongoing Islamist extremism doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect you too. It affects the majority of British Muslims. Just that, that chilling effect, that corrosive effect. And, and, and I think we need, to be, we need to acknowledge that. And we need to say that, you know, that they are, I think, they are the, the, the biggest victims of this. Um, and Isla- Islamist extremism has been done to death by lots of other people. So I didn't go into it in, in um, too much detail because I only wanted to put my energies where I felt I could say something different, where I could add something or contribute something that others hadn't done. The second biggest group is um, white supremacists, um, neo-Nazis who will very often use Faith as a, they're make believers, right? As a vehicle to promote their very sinister and very racist um, approach. And so you have the case of some um, white supremacists and neo Nazis literally running into mosques, eating bacon sandwiches, leaving Bibles in the mosque, um, barricading the doors where women are co- supposed to be coming out of. Um, uh, and just generally being, you know, really vile and, 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 and horrible and, and worse examples of this. There are many, many worse examples of this. So, and I'm pleased to say, you know, when Priti Patel was Home Secretary, she prescribed a number of these white supremacist neo-Nazi groups as terrorist organizations. And she, she did a brilliant job at doing that. And I applaud her for her courage in saying, I'm not going to put up with this. Because we had lots and lots of Islamist terrorist and extremist groups that were prescribed as terrorist organisations. And she took, I think, a really courageous decision of saying, no, we're going to go after some white supremacists as well because what they're doing is... Um, you know, Colin, why serious. is you say
0: courageous? That seems pretty normal thing for government to do to go after neo-Nazis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, it ought to be, but she did it. it. You know, she did it. So who was the Home Secretary from 2010 to 2016? Remind me. It was Theresa May. Those groups like the Sonnenkrieg division um, and the Luftwaffe or the, the Atomwaffe division and all these other groups—they're not sh- very—they're not, they're no, not very—they don't g- <laughs> conceal themselves no, no, well, they do don't. they? No. They don't. But no, pretty did. And 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 you know, I'm a good friend of hers, and I think she did. A, I think she, you know, she was magnificent. <laughs> okay. And and she 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 stepped. So up white supremacists so are second biggest. They're second biggest. and then I think there's a massive, massive, massive. Um, gap then between the third biggest group in terms of who, who are they in the UK and I do say in the report that they are Sikh extremists now the vast majority of British Sikhs, they're a relatively small population, the vast majority of them are the best of British, they are overrepresented in almost every positive f- um, indice you could look for, home ownership family staying together, academic results you know, um, starting businesses you know They're just brilliant, brilliant people. They're very charitable, they're very kind. They are some of the loveliest people I've ever met. Hiding amongst them is a tiny minority who who want and are fighting for an independent Sikh state in India called Khalistan, which is roughly the Punjab. Now, look, I'm almost a free speech absolutist, right? So I take this view and I say it in the report, People can believe whatever they want to believe. You can encourage people to believe what you believe. You can raise money. You can, you know, you can teach and educate. You can do whatever you like. But what you can't do is be coercive. What you can't do is threaten. And this group, there are plenty of Sikhs that, you know, have some vague notion that, yes, Khalistan would be quite nice. You know, uh, they would perhaps argue, you know, the Jews have got Israel, the Christians have got the West. Uh, in, the Hindus have got India. You know, Muslims have got the North Africa and, and, the, and the Gulf and um, uh, Pakistan. Uh, the Buddhists have got Sri Lanka and um, um, Myanmar. Where's our Where's our homeland? You know, we, we would, and I think there might be some small view that that might be the case, but they wouldn't dream in a million years of. Causing pain or suffering, or, or being aggressive, they certainly wouldn't terrorise anyone. They certainly wouldn't be extreme in their behaviour, and that's fine. You know, you can believe in that if that's what you want. I mean, I'm you know, it's not my not not my business. I'm not Indian. I'm not Sikh. Um, there is a tiny minority who are extremists, and I call them PKEs, Pro Khalistan Extremists. Um, and they are aggressive. They are um. They are threatening. I mean, the,
0: who, who are they aggressive towards, and who um, are they other threatening?
1: Sikhs primarily? I mean, uh-huh. this is kind of hermetically, like like with Islamists. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of hermetically sealed within the Sikh community. I had so many when we were doing the evidence gathering. So many Sikhs come to me under the promise of anonymity to say, "You know, our lives are being made a misery. You know, our, our gurdwaras—that's the gurdwara—is the Sikh temple. You know, are being taken over by these extremists. You know, they're they're kind of using." Our local sort of democratic means to become, you know, take over the running of our charities, of the Sikh charities, of the Sikh of the Sikh Gudwaras. and they're poisoning our young people with some, you know, some really hardline extremist things. And you know, they've come after me. They're really upset with me, and they've written all kinds of stuff and nonsense. So um, usual suspects saying that my report's flawed and they don't like what I had to say. and You know, that's fine. Um, um, but they can't deny that there are lots of Khalistan extremist and terrorist organizations that have been prescribed by the UK, by France, by Canada, by America, um, that um, some of the stuff that you can find quite easily on YouTube and other social media will make a hair curl. I mean, it's, it's, it's really obnoxious and violent stuff. And so, um, you know, they're on thin ice if they think that there isn't a problem. There is very much a problem. It was the Khalistanis that blew up the Air India flight. Over, you know until 9/11 the Khalistani extremists were the world's worst aviation terrorists which is why they were prescribed as a terrorist organization I mean they don't like they don't like being reminded of these things it was you know it was Sikh extremists that um, assassinated Indira Gandhi it was Sikh extremists that tried to you know cut the throat of general bra Sikh um, I think he was a general in the in the Indian Army, who was shopping in London. Tried to, you know, they tried to cut his throat. This is like 10 years ago. So, uh, you know, they can't deny that there's an issue. So we've got a few of them. Yeah. Quite a few. Mm-hmm. W- w- quite a few. W- when you mean? say how many, quite a few, yeah. Very same question. Well, yeah. well, well so, so I'm, I've been surprised at just how many. So if you were to look up, um, even as recently as this year, protests outside the Indian embassy, hundreds and hundreds of Sikhs with the Khalistani flags um, wearing, you know, Khalistan, Zinzabad t-shirts and things like this, hundreds of them protesting outside um, the Indian embassy. Even pulled down the Indian flag outside the Indian, caused a huge diplomatic uproar because they, you know, the Indian embassy said, you know, our, our police didn't do enough to sort of intervene, I think pulled down the Indian flag and replaced it with a Khalistani flag. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be like, I mean, I don't know what it would be like. Imagine back in the 80s, some Irish nationalists going to Delhi and going to the British embassy in Delhi and pulling down the British flag and replacing it with the Irish one or the the IRA flag. I mean, it would have that same emotional kind of response that we would have. That's exactly uh, um, how they're having it. And it's a very live issue. And, um, and you know, I, I know that my report was probably the first to really put that in the public domain to say, here is a big issue. Now to answer the second part of your question, yes, there is an issue with black nationalists. No one likes to talk about it, but there are some really wacky groups. Um, uh, and they, interestingly, pr- prisons are quite fertile places for, for, for these groups. Nation, nation of Islam, who you'll be familiar with, yep. um, um, mainstream Muslims would say they're not Islamic. Then there's a group who, um, they believe pretty much the same thing, but think that they're Jewish. I think they're called the... Um,
0: the black, he- black, Israelites Hebrew, Israel- or black Hebrew Israelites.
1: Black Hebrew Israelites. Mainstream Jews would say they're not Jewish. <laughs> and then there's a Christian group um, And they all pretty much believe the same thing. And most mainstream Christians would say, but they know they're not. And they're pretty racist and they're pretty obnoxious. Um, And look, I'm not a psychologist. I I, I can have an armchair view of perhaps why some of this might happen. But, um, you know, they're in there. I mean, again, all I'm saying in the report is it's not a major problem. But it's something government just needs to have their eyes on, particularly in prison, because there's a lot of... Well, this is what I was going
0: to ask you. We've got to wrap up because we're running out of time. But one of the things that does seem to be a problem, uh, and this isn't specific just to Islamism, but forced conversion, you know, the prison population seems to be disproportionately very religious and that is kind of suspect to Mm -hmm. me in many ways. So talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, so it is. If you were to take the prison population as a whole, it is much more religious and has a much higher number, have a faith than, than the rest of the country.
0: Which goes counter to your argument about how faith is good for society. But Cara, <laughs> well, no, because I'm some, just joking. Colin. No, but just you see, some, I,
1: I think some of them um, uh, uh, will, will, will do it because they want to have belonging when they're in prison. <laughs> That's all it was. That's all and it I was. think... Um, but when they're but when they're in prison, so there's this this idea there are some wings, and I did I did a lot of prison visits um, when I was doing the evidence gathering, um, and they're, they're grim places. I mean, you know, prisons are not nice places at all. You know, and the prison staff, I mean, it's a horrible job, and I'm you know I'm glad that someone's doing it. Um, but you go on some wings, and it will be like a Muslim wing, and it will be a convert or get hurt. You know, there'll be a there will be, a, and most by the way most. The vast majority of mainstream British Muslims would be, you know, horrified by this. They they would say these people are not, they're not, they're not speaking for us, you know, And and I, and I, and I, and I buy that. These are, it's basically gangs. These are, you know, you're in the Muslim gang and you'll get protection from, or, you know, you're in the Islamist gang and you'll get protection from, um, um, from from the others. It's, these are horrible, horrible places. But convert or get hurt, there'll be a copy of the Quran on your bed and you'll be expected to, you know, um, succumb. And they're, they're not the only ones. I mean, so there will be other, as I say, the, you know, there is some evidence to say that, um, uh, you know, some of the, the black supremacists will be, will be doing similar, you know, uh, similar exercises. Um, but the whole notion of, and, and my, you know, I'd encourage your, viewers and your listeners to download the report and read it it'll take about eight hours because it's quite a big thing um but um there's, there's there's quite a lot that i have to say about faith in prisons and um you know how and chaplaincy in prisons can be a really positive force for good um and i'd like to see government make some you know make, make some changes to that as well
2: Colin, it's been an absolute pleasure. The hour has flown by. We always end our interviews with the same question, which is what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be?
1: Now, I have pondered this, and there, was, there were two answers I was going to give. So I'm going to give you two, okay? I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, allow me. I think the first is the issue of critical minerals, rare earth and critical minerals. This is the new oil, right? Um, like 70% of Europe's critical minerals, the stuff that we need for our mobile phones and for, um, you know, our uh, our uh, technology and the big wind farms and things like this, 70% of them uh, are on the um, eastern border of Ukraine. Just, you know, I'm not surprised Russia wants it. So critical minerals, rare earth minerals and the supply chain of them. China have got us by the short and curlies on this. Mm. Not just us, the whole of the West. America has been asleep, Europe has been asleep, we have been asleep. We need a healthy supply chain of these critical minerals um, to make stuff. And at the moment, nearly all of that supply chain, 90% of it comes through China, either the processing or the the, the mining of it. And that's a massive problem because it means that Mm. They want to turn it off. We've got a problem. And then the, the, the second one is similar. It's um, state-sponsored industrial espionage. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know The amount of IP that we have in this country, whether it's in pharmaceuticals or whether it's in defence or whether it's in you know, high tech or that kind of thing.
2: Intellectual property. Like. Inter- uh, yeah, yeah,
1: intellectual property. That is being stolen by other states uh, is eye-watering. And, you know, um, my next report is actually on this subject, on state-sponsored industrial espionage. And the more I've looked into it, the more I get into it, the more I think this is a massive, massive problem and people should be talking about it. But no, we're going to fixate with, you know, the latest, I don't know, whatever tabloid issue there might be. There are really big, important issues that are happening right under our nose whether it's critical minerals, whether it's state-sponsored industrial espionage and other things. A lot of your guests have said other interesting things as well. And we've got to focus on that. We've got to get to grips with it. Colin Bloom,
0: thank you very much. Uh, head on over to Locals where we continue the conversation with your questions.
1: I think this imam said... Leo's got the video of it. I'm glad this is on your... Um, this is only your... The, the, yeah, a